Welcome to the Leadership Update Brief. Today's entrepreneurs and business leaders face change and transition as a constant part of daily life. Inspired by stories of today's military veterans and service members, we embark on a journey to explore their transformations and equip ourselves with new ideas and motivation towards mastering the challenge of working with dynamic and changing environments. Here's the host of the Leadership Update Brief and the guide to your journey, Ed Brixey. Hello and welcome to the Leadership Update Brief on C-Suite Radio. I'm Ed Brixey, and this week we speak about bridging the civilian-military gap. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. The gap between the civilian and the military world is one that begins with just the way both sides look at the world. It is a gap of experiences, viewpoints, ideas, and applications. Our guest this week has been in both worlds and is now acting on bringing new consulting and training ideas and methodologies into today's workplaces. Neil Duckworth served in the Marines, moved into working with the federal government, and now has created D2 Northeast Solutions aimed at helping today's businesses and organizations find new ways to promote safety, risk management, and the protection of their critical assets. You're listening to the Leadership Update Brief on C-Suite Radio. Welcome back to the Leadership Update Brief. This is Ed Brixey, and today I am joined with, by Neil Duckworth from D2 Northeast Solution. Neil, how are you doing today? Great, Ed. Thanks for having me on your show. No, it's great to have you here, Neil. So you've got a little bit of a new startup today. We met I'm over at the Bunker Labs commencement at WeWork here in Boston not too long ago, and got a pretty exciting thing going on with D2. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're pretty excited. Uh, it's, it's as you said, it's a startup company and we, it's my wife and I, so we're an army of two, uh, but we put it together uh, just last August and are trying to make a, make a run to get a market, get a network of customers here in New England, focusing on safety and security solutions. And that can entail anything from security assessments to training, to even providing some equipment uh, to help people around the work, workplace. Nice. That's awesome. And this is really a direct translation from a lot of your military experiences. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, Ed, uh, I retired from the Marine Corps in 2009. Uh, hard to believe it's been 10 years, but I was the chief of counterintelligence and human intelligence plans and policy. Uh, and I've worked up through the, uh, through the years uh, as a counterintelligence agent, uh, conducting security assessments, uh, as an interrogator, conducting interviews. So everything I did was really aligned with security. And an extension to that obviously is safety because you're trying to protect things and people and assets. And I finally got to a point where I just, uh, uh, in the Marine Corps, I just ended up senior enough that I ended up writing the policies and procedures to help everybody else do it throughout the Marines. Nice. That's awesome. And what's been that, what's that transition been like moving from military security over into corporate security? Well, believe it or not, Ed, it was really easy when I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, Washington, D.C. is filled with former military people. And uh, whether you're just getting out or you've been there for 20 years, you find yourself surrounded by other veterans that are all brought up the same way when it comes to leadership 
and development. Uh, the things that military people kind of take, you know, we, we kind of take it for granted because we don't realize the civilian community is like this. But, you know, in the military, we had leadership and development training, like almost either annually or by grade uh, to develop us to assume those responsibilities of the next senior rank or the next senior person, you know, if bad things happen in a combat zone. So no, you, there's that leadership uh, culture from the military. It's, it's difficult seeing with, that's a huge part of the uh, transition right there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but so it was really easy in Washington, DC. Uh, the transition out was great. I supported Homeland Security and Central Intelligence Agency. Um, for a couple years, then I became a federal employee, and the same thing. I was surrounded by a structure uh, that was great, but it was when I moved to Boston and uh, entered the real civilian world uh, for the first time five years ago that I found myself much like a duck out of water, uh, <laughs> because everything that I knew to be true in leadership and management, a lot of civilians find themselves climbing up their chain of command or up to, you know, getting promotion after promotion. And they don't realize the impact of uh, their own actions as a manager and leadership. Yeah, it's funny. It's uh, the Peter principle seems is highly prevalent within a lot of, within a lot of civilian organizations. And like you said, that impact, the idea of that is, it's a very foreign idea sometimes. Absolutely. And it's funny you say that because I had never heard of the Peter principle in, uh, until I came here and I was explaining what I was going through and someone brought that up to me and it absolutely applies. Yeah, certainly. certainly. Promoted, what, how's it go? People are promoted to the... Promoted to the level of their incompetence, honestly. There you go, promoted to their level of incompetence. And, you know, it's just, it, it was it was sad to me. And, and in the Marine Corps, I made my bones on mentoring and developing subordinates. And I was, if I ever made a mistake and did not share that with everybody and someone else made the same mistake I did, it made me feel terrible. And I, I was a failure because someone else made a mistake that I had already learned from. Exactly. And, and there's so much in the military, I mean, every AAR and going out, there's so much knowledge sharing and the mentorship side of it. It's an amazing how that culture and that wealth gets created. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it was just startling that, you know, in the civilian world, people are embarrassed by making mistakes, uh, where in the military, you kind of celebrate it because you, you made it and got away with it. You know, if you made it and lived, you know, you're like, woo. All right. <laughs> exactly. Let's tell everybody and do not do that again. Yep. Yep. It's, it's, it's the learning mentality. It's okay. We made a mistake. What's next? It's not, oh, we made a mistake. It's the end of the world. Yes. Exactly. So uh, it, that that was my biggest transition trouble was uh, coming into a civilian community where there was a lot more micromanagement uh, in the military. They kind of just, you know, I'll tell you how to do it or tell you what to do, not how to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, I kept finding myself being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. And then no matter what my responsibility, uh, I had someone right there at, you know, side by side with me, making sure I did it all correctly. And, and that was, it just kind of got to a point where I said, you know, where I'm at is not really for me. And I kind of, my wife and I said, well, you know, why don't we try doing something on our own? Nice. That's awesome. That was the straw that broke the camel's back that you got you two to plant your flag in the sand. Exactly. The, uh, um, we did a, uh, uh, I, I, 
Well, that, you see, that was the, the thing. That was the one of the straws. The biggest one, though, was watching the news last year, mm-hmm. uh, last couple of years, and there were active shooters in, uh, in the United States. You know, 10 years ago, who the heck knew the term active shooter? No one said it. We said mass murder. We said, oh, you know, you know, attacks or something. But no one really said the term active shooter. And, and then these past few years, there's been more of them. I think in 2017, there were, in 2016 and 2017, there were 50 total. Uh, and in 2018, there were 27, where multiple people were engaged by, you know, one or two gunmen. And how terrible is that? And my wife and I were sitting here saying, every time we'd see it, we were, we'd be like <laughs> talking to each other saying, oh, uh, I wonder how they, you know, how many people could have got away if they had done this, you know, everybody's looking to run out the door, but if they thought about trying to make a, an exit through a window and exit through a wall, mm-hmm. you know, you know, how are they barricading themselves into a room? Do they know how to take off their belts and hold the doors shut, you know, and, you know, or barricade things with cable, cables from the printer, you know, it's all these things. And we finally said, you know, nobody, no, not nobody, a large majority of the civilian population do not understand these basic things that military people are taught uh, to survive. Uh, and my wife is a nurse, and I've also had quite a bit of trauma medical training from the military. And uh, we were wondering, you know, how many people just know how to use a tourniquet? Mm-hmm. How, many, how many people know, you know, when you see bleeding, push on it, you know, directly. Exactly. Um, when I led, uh, I led an Iraqi unit in Ramadi, and that was the biggest thing I, you know, I had to teach everybody. You see blood, push on it. You know, until I get there, until a medic gets there. Um, but civilians don't think like that, and it and it requires the ability to to think and react, and having thought through things before it happens. So oh, certainly, I mean, it's military training. I mean, I was I was I was a grunt, so combat lifesaver was a common course that we took every year, and it was you know first response, trauma response. I mean, sticking people with IVs. I mean, even paramedics aren't even allowed to do that here in the U.S. on some ambulances so it's a whole different degree of training and learning that you get but it's something that in that situation and it doesn't even have to be an active shooter it can just simply be an industrial accident somebody gets cut somebody gets something crushed in somewhere and being that person on the ground who can make a decision and act on it it's critical oh you're absolutely correct absolutely i was fortunate enough also to uh, i went through a live tissue training where uh, we're not, you know, the military was not fans of from uh, PETA, but uh, we conducted actual medical training on hogs, uh, which I am, I 100% believe that that helped me save lives because I had seen blood, I'd seen bad things uh, before it happened to me in Iraq, and I was able to, you know, react and act appropriately. So, you know, I know it was military put a lot of money and effort into it and it's it's not really politically correct now but uh it was something that saved lives much like you know your combat life-saving training and everything else no absolutely but so with d2 you're taking this into the corporate world and helping people i mean it's not just active shooter training like you were saying it's a little bit of just risk management safety and security and helping people you know in that moment because when things are going well, we can be honest, companies are great. It's when the shit hits the fan and are there leaders on the ground able to make the right decisions and 
do the right thing in order to resolve things successfully. You're right. Ed. It's, uh, you know, it's, you're right. It's not active shooter entirely. What we, that was just kind of the thing that the class we came out of the gates with because it seemed like something that people needed, but, mm -hmm. uh, truthfully, it's when we come into a organization, whether it be a church, any house of worship, uh, a company or even a family that's going to travel overseas, uh, on a vacation to a possibly third world country or second world country, uh, we find out what they need to protect. You know, what are their critical assets? Um, for some people, it's, you know, safeguarding the secret sauce, uh, their intellectual property, proprietary information. For others, it's their staff, their, fac uh, their faculty, their family. Um, but we figure out what they want to protect, and then we look at where their vulnerabilities are. And we try and, uh, a lot of times it's through teaching classes that you try and help them and it's, it's kind of a, it's a low cost solution because a lot of people don't want to invest in security kind of issues like this. Uh, so the low cost solution is always through training, but we try and fill in some of the gaps and help them be a little bit more prepared and think through a situation before it comes, whether it be a workplace conflict, you know, so, you know, I teach a class uh, for managers in that have based on my training in my last or based on my personal experience, how people have been promoted as managers, but they have no idea how to actually manage or lead or provide constructive criticism. And, you know, every, the numbers are just astonishing across the United States about how much workplace violence there is. I mean, I think last year or 2017, there was like 2 million reported incidents of workplace violence and maybe 30,000 of those required uh, a missing day of work. Wow, and that's staggering. It's staggering. But, you know, and behind all of those, you keep wondering, well, where did it start? You know, because mm -hmm. usually violence starts with workplace conflict, bullying, harassment. So I kind of walked the dog backwards and I talked to managers about how uh, they are critical in it and they can't just turn a blind eye to it, but how to counsel someone. It's, you know, going back to the military mm -hmm. training that we've all gone through, uh, you know, when I was a young non-commissioned officer, uh, I took a correspondence course called counseling for Marines, you know, and it's, there's these basic things that managers and leaders need to do to kind of try and nip it in the bud. But also if you can't nip it in the bud, you're establishing a, uh, a chain of events that you can work with human resources to try and get this person out of your organization. Mm -hmm. So managers need to do it and they need to understand uh, their role because if they don't address things, you're going to have terrible morale, increased staff turnover, uh, and then maybe bad things like espionage, theft, or heaven forbid, active shooter may come out of it. No, absolutely. And so improving the overall safety and security of the organization, and it's, like you said, it's nipping problems in the bud, right? From, and getting, dealing with the issues directly and not waiting for something to escalate. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, that's an awesome solution. You guys have quite a few other little clever things. I mean, I remember coming, when I saw you guys at Bunker Labs, you had sort of your little trauma kits for organizations that were positioned right there next to the AED, the, the defibrillator. So having a little bit more stuff available that if anything, Thing does happen there have that level of preparedness well exactly that's and again it goes back to you know when we were in the military uh i can't remember i cannot remember what the acronym stood for but it was called an ifac 
Mm-hmm. Oh, individual first aid kit. Yep. <laughs> so we all carry this IFAC. And nowadays, you never know where these events are going to happen. Bad things happen. So our thought, like you said, was anywhere you see a CPR AED machine, a defibrillator, on the wall, why is there not a trauma kit right next to it with pressure bandages, you know, gloves, band-aids, uh, pressure bandages, and things like that? Uh, because in the old days, we learned about uh, start, start the breathing, stop the bleeding, protect mm-hmm. the wound, treat for shock. Um, in the past 10 years since, uh, well, probably, what, 15 years since we've really been in the war, they, we kind of learned that we kind of need to reverse those first two. And it's not just start the breathing, stop the bleeding. You can, you're gonna, you can bleed out uh, faster than you need to get your breath back. Mm-hmm. So they kind of change it to stop the bleeding, especially when you have a terrible wound. You have to stop the bleeding first, then uh, start the breathing. So we're trying to find ways to teach the organizations around uh, how to do the Stop the Bleeding. There's a, there's a national government program called Stop the Bleed. Uh, came out several years ago under the Obama administration. It didn't get the traction that uh, you would have thought, but, uh, but this program's still out there and alive, and they provide a lot of the, uh, all the instructional materials and stuff. I'm a certified trainer, uh, as is my wife. And so... Those kind of concepts is what we're looking at. And then we also had another kit just based on our experiences of how to barricade yourself into a room uh, to protect yourself against an active shooter. You know, when if an active shooter comes in, you, you try and find a place that he can't, he or she can't get into. Uh, bathrooms are good because you've got, you know, sanitary and water uh, and you can put a, quite a few people in there usually. If for the larger bathrooms, but how do you barricade yourself in? So everything from door stops to uh, uh, special cables to work on hinges, uh, different ideas. So each place is different, and we kind of tailor make these active shooter kits based on the offices and what kind of windows, whether it's on the ground floor or the fifth floor. You don't need a window breaker on the fifth floor because mm-hmm. you can't survive the job. Uh, so, but on the first two floors, you'd want a window breaking hammer or a hole punch that you could knock out a window. Uh, upper floors, maybe you would want that, but you'd want a ladder, you know, one of those rope ladders or mm-hmm. extend down. So we're just kind of trying to increase the survivability of people. And we keep saying, you know, let's not be a, try not to be a victim, be a victor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so we're trying to identify different ways to help organizations survive. Nice. That's fantastic. It's, it's rare because you see so many veterans coming out of the service and the common misconception is, oh, everything that the military taught me is completely inapplicable here in the civilian world. But I think so much of it is, it's just being able to refine it into a new context. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Ed. And that's, honestly, that's always been one of my biggest challenges. Uh, it's like, how do I take this and say this? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I know, you know, how do I... S- you know, you apply for a job and how do you say, yeah, I got this, you know, what do you need? Exactly. Exactly. And that's sort of the tough part. And it's great to see that you guys are putting so much um, attention on this because again, it is an issue and it's, you know, the catalyst was the act of shooters, but it's so applicable. Cause I mean, I know in the army, we call it pace planning, primary alternate contingency emergency. So if everything we did, we always had these different layers and that last step was okay. When absolutely everything goes wrong, we do have something 
in our hip pocket that we know how to take action. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's kind of, you know, you know, in the military, well, in the civilian world, they call them portfolios. Oh, what's your portfolio? Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the military, you just kind of change the assignments. Maybe you're a drill sergeant or you're a, uh, a recruiter or, you know, you end up as a detailer. I mean, doing administrative billets or finance. But you're still maybe an infantry person or a logistics or, or whatever, but you got a different assignment and no one freaks out. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, you know, I know you, you're a staff sergeant, you're a captain, uh, you can do this. And, and, and you know yourself, ah, it's taking me a little while to get up to speed and I got this. You know, no one thinks twice about it. So when you see a, you know, a job announcement in the civilian world that says, oh, you need a program manager or this, and you're like, ah, I got that. You know, whatever. I mean, a program schmogram, I can do this. Mm-hmm. But how do you get a hiring manager to understand that? And that's the, unless they're a veteran, they don't, uh, they don't get it how we can, you know, military people are plug and play. Yeah, exactly. And it's certain, it's a certain mentality and it's finding just the right words and the way to translate. I think that's the ongoing battle. Cause again, like you said, hiring managers have, they just have no idea what we're capable of. True. And that, and even today, this is my challenge. So, but at least now I've been out for 10 years, I can step back. I'm always better doing it with someone else than my own self, <laughs> but I can, <laughs> aren't we all? Yeah. Someone else, I can step back and say, "Hey, uh, you know, have you thought about this?" Or you know, start selling yourself like this. Um, you know, you and I, when we had that talk the other day about leadership and you, your leadership coaching, I was like, it was so insightful to me because uh, I'm like, "Huh?" I'm like, uh, I mentor people all the time, but pretty much everything I'm doing on mentoring, you could call that coaching. Mm-hmm. But yet, I never put in my resume that I coach people but it made absolute sense after our conversation. No, certainly. And it's, it's just finding those little ways to tweak the language and just get a better understanding of all the, stu- all the skills we actually walk away from our time in the service with. Absolutely. So, so last piece, um, for somebody coming out who wants to start something up, what would you say, what would be that piece of advice to help them begin translating those skills? What are some of, what's like the number one lesson you've learned in doing that? Number one thing for me is uh, I think there are so many uh, opportunities where nonprofits are helping veterans that want to get into the entrepreneurial space and the small business space. Find one. I mean, Syracuse University has one. Uh, New England's got two or three or four around here, uh, but they're all over the country. But find one of those or apply to multiple ones because for me, what I didn't do is, you know, I, I, you know, I started running with a company and now I'm, you know, part of this residency program with Bunker Labs. Uh, and I find myself not knowing what everybody else knows because I don't know anything about real business. You know, I know what I have. I have my skills and I'd like to help people. And if I can make some money at it and pay the rent, that's great. Uh, if I can't, that's a problem. But, you know, how do you actually run a business, the taxes, the, the, you know, the marketing, how much money do you need to start? You know, how do you raise money, equity, debt? How do you do it? So I think I, in hindsight, I would have backed up and <laughs> taken some classes before I started, uh, which would help me refine my offerings and refine everything, uh, uh, my capabilities and my market and network. And then I'd been ready to go out of the gate. 
Nice. Yeah, there's no, there's so many resources. And I mean, you're in a great place over there, at least with WeWork and having, being surrounded by other people who are having the same issues. So kind of just pooling those thought ideas together and bringing in that knowledge of the business side of things. And I mean, I'll be honest, I came out, I got my MBA and I still faced a learning cliff when I kicked off Bluecore. that my entire first year was putting together all the tactical skills. So it's exactly. constant areas of refinement and just, again, finding out those resources of which there's so, so many. No, and that's the other thing too. Good point on the uh, education. If you have, uh, if you have the GI Bill coming out and getting your education in business, uh, a business degree and entrepreneurial things, that gives you the time of taking your own business, your own thoughts, mm -hmm. and working at it in college while getting the uh, while still getting you know some uh, stipend from the GI Bill to sustain yourself for a couple of years. So that's even the even more perfect way to get out and transition. Oh, absolutely. It's understanding all the different resources that are out there. And it's tough when you come out because it's just sort of like an avalanche. It just floods you like, you got this, this, this. So you have the GI Bill to work with the VA. You've got this for job training. You've got, you know, so many things and it's just almost becomes overwhelming. Absolutely. No, appreciate your time on the show here today, Neil. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much. And Good luck getting everything off the ground with D2. It's exciting to see a lot of other um, the veteran entrepreneurs at Bunker Labs, at WeWork, and here just in the Boston space. So I look forward to seeing you guys continue to grow. Thanks, Ed. I really appreciate the time and uh, really enjoy listening to your program. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Take care. Bye. You're listening to the Leadership Update Brief on C-Suite Radio. How can veterans get hiring managers to understand our military experiences? That's the ultimate question. Neil, thanks for your great ideas and the story of your transition from the military into the civilian world. The most significant challenge between these two worlds begins with a simple understanding of what both sides bring to the table. This problem requires two different approaches. On the private business side, it is about having managers understand the broad spectrum of skills that veterans do indeed bring to the table. While for veterans, it's about finding new ways to articulate what we've done in the service and how it benefits our new employers or how we can transfer those skills into building something new. Thanks again, Neil, for your passion, your stories, and your ideas, thoughts, and for what you're doing with D2. Thank you all for listening. I welcome your comments. You can find me on social media, both Twitter and Facebook at BlueCordMGMT. We're two episodes away from our mail call episode. Reach out to us over social media or via mail call at leadershipupdatebrief.com to submit your questions. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, your favorite podcast service. And as always, we're available on C-Suite Radio at c-suitenetwork.com. Thanks again. I look forward to continuing our journey soon. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to C-Suite Radio. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. As a loyal fan of the C-Suite Radio show, I've got an incredible offer for you. Listeners to this podcast get 50% off a C-Suite Network membership. The C-Suite Network will help you become the most strategic person in the room. You will have access to top-notch benefits and networking, all helping you get the most out of your position. Take advantage of this limited offer today. 
Learn more about the C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com slash CSR. Again, that's 50% off a C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com slash CSR. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.